If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 635. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Also, while you're there, click on that little thanks button under the YouTube video. If you like it and you want to send me a few dollars or a few pennies, whatever you got, because you like the video. So it's a great way to support the show by clicking on that thanks heart under the video. Also, if you want to find all those uh, social media accounts, just go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audio book of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. You can also click on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Of course, a great way to support the show is by going is by rating, review, and subscribing to the podcast, right? I mean, rate it wherever you get your podcast, review it wherever you get your podcast, and subscribe to the podcast. That lets me know you like the show. Also, share it around on social media. Tell people about it. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Send me those show requests. It's a great way to interact with the show. So all of that I appreciate, and I do appreciate all of your support. Okay, let's talk about the topic of the day, and it's the Supreme Court. And we know the Supreme Court is a hot-button topic right now. We know there's protests in front of justices' houses. Uh, We're seeing the Supreme Court at the forefront of the American polity. Was it supposed to be that way is a big question. And people on the left are now going ballistic about the Supreme Court. Why? Well, because supposedly conservatives control the court. They're looking at this as a 6-3 to majority for conservatives. And that means that the court is going to be a partisan political hammer on whatever the left wants to do. And if you look at the federal court system in the lower courts of the federal courts. This is something that happened during the Trump administration that people don't often talk about. The left knows it. But Mitch McConnell was brutal in what he was doing while he was majority leader of the Senate and ensuring that a lot of the appointments that Obama wanted to put in place were not filled in the last days of the Obama presidency. And so when Trump became president, they started filling all of these federal court positions with, again, quote-unquote, conservative judges. And it doesn't mean that the conservatives are going to get their, nece- their desired outcome. In fact, that term conservative is so broad, it's meaningless. And when you look at some conservatives and what they want, they're essentially progressive nationalists in their own designs, their own policy preferences. So I, I base conservatism on what Calhoun said about it, and that's simply that he's a conservative because he's a states' rights man. Now, he did believe in enforcing the Constitution, and he thought that states' rights or federalism was the core of that position. But, of course, if the general government violated the Constitution in any way, that would become illegal. Now, if the states violated the Constitution in any way, that would also be illegal, and so you do have that caveat to it. The states cannot violate Article I, Section 10, and they cannot violate certain parts of the Constitution that are exclusively federal jurisdiction. But usually those powers are played off each other in Article 1, Section 8 and Article 1, Section 10. There's some other things there, but that's generally where you look at it. So a lot of conservatives are not states' rights people at all. We're seeing this now with the potential 
for overturning Roe v. Wade. And there was an article in the Western Journal that talked about the 13th Amendment somehow uh, being responsible for uh, saying that abortion would have to be illegal in the states. This is a strange reading of the 13th Amendment. And I was going to do a podcast on this, but I'll just mention it briefly. Um, It's a very strange reading of the 13th Amendment because it goes back to what was happening in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s when abolitionists were saying the Constitution was an anti-slavery document or some were saying it was a pro-slavery document. As I've made a case on this particular show, it's actually a neutral document when it comes to that. Now, of course, people can... I had um, somebody at the Garrison Foundation, I think it was, get very upset with me about that because, you know, it was not, it's not a neutral document on slavery. It's not. It never was. So the fact is, it is a neutral document on slavery. The, the founding generation wanted to ensure that. They, they toned down the language. Of course, there was parts of the Constitution, the Fugitive Slave Clause, for example, and the, uh, the allowance for the international slave trade, which they didn't use the term slavery to continue until 1808. Those type of things, you could say, well, those are positive pronouncements of slavery. And of course, the Constitution allowed the states to decide the issue. That's the point. This is where you get into this current debate over Roe v. Wade. It's still the point. The 13th Amendment didn't change that at all, regardless of what some people on uh, on the right will say. The 13th Amendment has not done that. It's still a state issue. So whether we, I mean, whether you like it or not, that's what it comes down to. And uh, whatever your policy preference on that particular position is, that's the issue. And that's the way with most domestic issues in the United States. It, it just is. I mean, even the issue of murder, which I've heard people, you know, I, I read the comments and some things, well, you know, this is a murder issue. Well, that's a state issue as well. There's nothing in the Constitution that allows the general government to legislate on the issue of murder. That was an issue for the states. They determine criminal law. And because murder is a criminal situation, the states determine that, right? So if that's the case, and the states set up the requirements for this, and the federal government has no role in that. We're, the, all these layers of federal law are redundant and actually illegal. So that is important to understand. Now, the piece I want to talk about today is about the Supreme Court being political and how the left has just discovered that the Supreme Court is political. Oh my gosh, we've got a 6-3 conservative majority. It's political. The court became political. Well, Slate even ran an article. I think it was Slate or was it Salon? Let me look at this again. Oh, Salon.com. Excuse me. Matthew Rosa. Matthew Rosa at Salon um, ran an article saying, well, wait a second here. Um, Politics has always been part of the high court. The left is now discovering that, well, my gosh, this is a political institution. We've got to do something about it. We've got to pack the court. Well, I mean... Uh, they've known this. The left has always known this. In fact, it became their extra-legal branch of government to get what they wanted. As I've said before, the left wouldn't have most of what they wanted without the court because they can't get it rammed through a legislature. Legislatures at the state level don't want it. The Congress generally doesn't do it either because the American public is not in line with what the left really wants American society to look like at the state level or even at the federal level, but particularly at the state level. You'll find some states, so they could have it there. But see, that's not good enough for the left. It's really never good enough for the left, which is the real problem. That's why I always think we need to appeal to the left to try to wake up and figure out that, oh my gosh, you can have your leftist, stupid leftist utopia in whatever state you want if you just had the majority there. right? California, you could have it. Massachusetts, you could have it. New York, you could have it. 
Washington State, Oregon, you can have these things. Now, conservatives in those states get upset with me when I say these things. They're like, well, I mean, come on now. I live in California, and I don't want to live in that state. Well, then move. And I know it's hard to do, and I know it's hard to say, but you know, you, you pick in the United States where you live, and certainly we don't want to be in a situation where you are uh, overrun with uh, just bad policies, and maybe you've lived there for generations. Your family is buried there. Where are your people buried? This matters to, to people, conservatives in particular. But at some point, you've got to cut your losses if the state is becoming uh, that oppressive. And by appealing to the center, you're undermining your entire position. And you're undermining your position because when you appeal to the center, you're going to destroy every vestige of the original Constitution and many of these issues. All right, so let's talk about this piece, Matthew Rosa at Salon.com. The Supreme Court is and has always been a political institution. That would be self-evident if not for the mystique that has been built up around America's most important judicial body. That aura has started to dissipate. A recent Monmouth University poll found that more than half of Americans disapproved of the court's recent performance, but it remains powerful enough that people take Chief Justice John Roberts seriously when he bemoans the supposed politicization of the Supreme Court. Before his retirement, Justice Stephen Breyer even published a book urging Americans to return the high court to its supposedly august and apolitical roots. So this is a nice introductory paragraph, in fact. Now, this poll shows you that Americans are clueless about what the court has become, and even back to the early history of the court, which stretches all the way back to the Marshall Court, right? That's why I included a chapter of the last half of the book and how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America on the court, because the court was acting as a political animal during the Marshall uh, regime and the Marshall Court. The Marshall Court was immovably opposed to Jeffersonian republicanism. Marshall believed the Republicans were terrorists, they were trying to lop off the heads of Federalists, and he wanted to use the court as a political weapon against Republicans. And it was open. And once Justice Chase, uh, Samuel Chase, was not convicted when he was impeached, Marshall knew that they could be as political as they wanted on the bench. You see, that was the real turning point in American jurisprudence when Samuel Chase was impeached but not removed from the bench. If he had been removed, the Supreme Court takes on an entirely different character to this day because justices could be removed for acting as partisans on the bench. Now, I can make a case that what's happening with Roe v. Wade is not the judges acting as partisans on the bench, but simply following the Constitution. However, I could also make a case that Roe v. Wade was a completely politically partisan decision, not based on law, but on political opinion. And there's many cases as that with the left involved in it. Not the right, but the left. You see, the Constitution is the weapon of strict constructionists because there's nothing that the left can do about that. So what they do is get political hacks put on the bench and then they legislate from the bench. This has long been the motive of the left, which is amazing that this Salon article is saying this because what the left really wants to do is get more judges there so they can make it their legislative arm again. By pointing this out, you're saying, well, wait, what we've been doing now for, for a couple of hundred years is incorrect. Now that, the judge, now that the justices, excuse me, are evidently poised to overturn Roe v. Wade, those who insist or imagine that the Supreme Court must somehow remain above politics have become even more strident. Pro-choice advocates argue that the impending decision proves that the high court has strayed from its constitutional mission. While the anti-abortion contingent insists that since judges are above politics, their reasoning is un unassailable. 
and the presumed leaker has immeasurably damaged the institution. Now, I think that what's really funny about this is that somehow the left is saying that this is that Roe v. Wade was a constitutional decision. Even the people that were responsible for it, even the people that were on the left recognized at the time, this is a really bad legal decision. It's not based on the Constitution at all. This is a political mode, uh, political uh, um, manifesto, right? It's all it is. So he says, these arguments are almost stunning in their historical ignorance. For one thing, the framers of the Constitution basically said nothing about the Supreme Court's mission, describing it as simply as one Supreme Court. This is true. Now, you can find what they did say about it if you go out if you go out and look at the ratification debates. I find this position just hilarious. If you take my originalist papers class at McLean Academy, you're going to read what people said about the Supreme Court. The founders did say a lot about it. They said a lot about it in the ratification debates. They may not have said much about it in the Constitution itself, in the written document, but they said a lot about it in other areas. In fact, uh, John Marshall said something about it in the Virginia Ratifying Convention, and other people said it there. Look, the Supreme Court should declare federal law that's unconstitutional unconstitutional. A state law, that's a whole other issue. whole other issue. The Judiciary Act of 1789, passed during the first year of the George Washington presidency, fleshed out what the court would do, including assigning its six members, a chief justice and five associate justices. That number was officially expanded to nine in 1869. Well, why 1869? Why? What happened there? Well, uh, that was the year that Grant became president, and what they did is remove Johnson's ability to appoint justices, and then they expanded it out so they could pack the court. This is the Republicans packing the court, essentially, for a political motivation. Now, what this piece does not point out about the Judiciary Act of 1789 is that the Congress also included a provision in that act that allowed for state decisions to be appealed to the federal courts, which was a complete bastardization of what the Supreme Court was argued in the ratifying conventions. It destroyed federalism completely. And so that is something that people don't often talk about. For more than a decade, however, the court took on few cases and had very little to do. The executive branch had proved strong under Washington, and Congress quickly took on various legislative roles. But the judicial branch was initially unclear about exactly how much power it really had. Well, again, this is not really understanding the court, because the court did actually declare a federal law constitutional. But they did it in a way that we don't recognize. They didn't have majority and minority opinions. They didn't organize it that way. Every judge issued a separate opinion, and then you had to sift through those opinions. They also rode the circuit, which meant that they had to go and sit on all these inferior courts, federal courts. But uh, they did actually declare it's Hilton v. United States, where Alexander Hamilton was arguing that a federal tax was constitutional before the court, and they upheld it. Um, and so this gave the federal government much more taxing power, right? We also know the court was doing something that was um, deemed to be disastrous, and it led to the 11th Amendment, state sovereign immunity, because the states decided they weren't going to allow themselves to be dragged before a federal court without their consent. So the court was doing things in the early 11 years, or whatever he says here. Uh, and and uh, for the first decade or so. They were doing things. 
Again, this is the, uh, Mr. Rosa does not really understand the court history. This is a, a, a cartoonish understanding of the court history. Chief Justice John Marshall understood something important. The appearance of putting partisanship aside would serve to legitimize more partisan decisions in the future. Politics changed that. After John Adams' loss to Thomas Jefferson in the 1800 presidential election, he decided to stack the judiciary with members of his Federalist Party so that Jeffersonian—I'm sorry, Jefferson's Democratic Republicans couldn't implement their agenda. Yet some of the justices' commissions were delivered prior to Jefferson's inauguration, and since the new president believed that that nullified their appointments, he instructed Secretary of State James Madison not to deliver them. One such appointee, Maryland businessman William Marbury, sued Madison, claiming that his appointment was legal and that the government should be required to follow through with it. Now, John Marshall, of course, was appointed in the waning days of the Adams administration, and so he took his seat uh, in 1801. He was also Secretary of State while he was undergoing confirmation, and so it was, uh, <laughs> it was Marshall that failed actually to deliver this to William Marbury, which is the funny part of all of this. Marbury likely believed that Chief Justice John Marshall, who was also a Federalist, would be sympathetic to his case. If so, he miscalculated Marshall's ability to play the long game. Apparently more intent on increasing his own power than aiding his political party, Marshall authored the landmark 1803 decision, which agreed with Marbury that Madison's actions were contrary to law, but added that since the law involved was itself unconstitutional, it was not valid. So the precedent was established that the Supreme Court could strike down laws to determine were in violation of the Constitution, which also launched the notion that the court was above politics. Now again, this was not the first time the court actually weighed in on a constitutional issue. It was, in, it was before that, right? Hilton v. United States. Except it totally wasn't. Totally. Except it totally wasn't, dude. It totally wasn't. What Marshall understood was that the appearance of putting partisanship aside would help legitimize the court's future decisions, even when they were blatantly partisan. Arguably, the Roberts Court's ruling that preserved the Affordable Care Act, while disappointing many conservatives, played a similar function. In Marshall's case, this meant that the Federalist parties remained relevant long after the party of Washington and Adams had faded away. Future justices sought to preserve the mantle of legitimacy Marshall had bestowed, even when they used it for very different causes. So, yes, the court acted as the Federalist arm of the government for years. And it wasn't just Marshall. It was Joseph Story. He was actually a Republican. James Madison was a disaster in his Supreme Court appointments. He tried to appoint John Quincy Adams, which would have been a disaster for federalism. Then he appointed Joseph Story, who thought, well, Story's going to be okay. But you see, what's going on here is interesting. You have a Southerner, Madison, who's trying to maintain a balance on the court. You see, they were all worried about sectionalism, and so he's looking for a Northerner to go on the court. And so Joseph Story gets put on the bench, and Story, who was green, came under Marshall's wing, and Marshall influenced him to become one of the most important nationalist justices in the history of the court. And it's not because of what Story did on the court. It's because of what he did as a legal scholar, quote-unquote, in writing his commentaries on the Constitution. That became Joseph Story's most lasting contribution to the court and to interpretation of what the court should do or not do. That book is not an originalist manifesto. It's a Marshall-driven distortion of originalism. So, and again, I talk about this in How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, which I have a class, by the way, at McLean Academy on that, too. 
Consider the most famous, infamous Supreme Court decisions of the 19th century, Dred Scott v. Sanford and Plessy v. Ferguson. In the first of those, the court ruled that an enslaved man in Missouri named Dred Scott could not claim to have been freed when his owner took him to Illinois and the Wisconsin Territory, jurisdictions where slavery was illegal. In ruling against Scott, Chief Justice Roger Tawney, an avowed white supremacist, found that people with African descent are not included and were not intended to be included under the word citizens in the Constitution. Well, I mean, maybe, maybe not. States could decide these things. And as such, had no legal rights. As Salon's Keith Spencer recently noted, it is conceivable that people seeking abortions will face similar states' rights issues after Roe is overturned. You see, this is, this is the problem, right? Um, that Tawny decision was an issue of substantive due process, not procedural due process. He's expanding what due process means, and that's, that's troubling. It was a distortion of what due process meant in the Fifth Amendment. But of course, this was carried, you know, other, other decisions did this exact same thing. Uh, but Dred Scott v. Samford um, was a distortion of the Constitution. Now, Plessy v. Ferguson would go back to uh, this issue of federalism. Okay. Going one step further, the court ruled that the Missouri Compromise, an 1820 legislative agreement that sought to limit the expansion of slavery in newly added states or territories, was unconstitutional. Now, that's interesting. I mean, look, you could actually make a case that uh, the, you, you can regulate the territories, right? I mean, this is something that you could say, the territories. But once a state became a state, once a state became a state, they couldn't do anything about it. States could decide this issue all they wanted. The territory could be free from slavery, but the state could do whatever it wanted. It was uh, a situation where the general government was trying to tell Missouri what it could and could not do as a state. That was really the problem in 1820. And uh, Congress looking at this issue of the territories. Now, you could also make a case, this is public property. There's no, uh, there's no authority for the general government to legislate on the issue of slavery whatsoever. But there were Southerners who thought this was perfectly fine. You know, Philip Pendleton Barber was one in Virginia. He thought that the federal government could legislate on slavery in the territories because it had municipal power over the territories. So this is actually a very interesting legal issue. Um, and it's one that the court weighed in on in Dred Scott v. Sanford. Of course, the justices claimed this decision was based purely on legal issues, but the historical consensus holds that it was politically motivated. Incoming President James Buchanan, who supported the Southern slave owner aristocracy, even though he was from Pennsylvania, exerted pressure on the court to side with the pro-slavery faction and probably heard about the decision from Tawney in advance. Well, that's true. Uh, they thought they could settle it in the court, and that would be it. Right? I mean, this is using the court as a political weapon. After Franklin D. Roosevelt was elected, the politically motivated tendency to find reasons why laws regulating business were unconstitutional went into overdrive. Politics again trumped the law in Plessy v. Ferguson, which required the court to rule on whether Louisiana had violated the 14th Amendment by segregating railroad cars. Since the amendment held that whites and black Americans were equal under the law, this created a logical conundrum. Yet the justices, clearly motivated by a desire to avoid alienating white supremacists, which is not true, evaded the common-sense argument and found that accommodations could be separate but equal. The lone dissenter, John Marshall Harlan, called out the blatant political logic at play. Now, let me say this. Uh, this was actually a decision that was made by a dominant Republican court, appointed by Republicans. So people don't realize 
Everyone knows that the statue in question had its origin and the purpose not so much to exclude white persons from railroad cars occupied by blacks as to exclude colored people from coaches occupied by or assigned to white persons. Railroad corporations of Louisiana did not make discrimination among whites in the matter of accommodating for tra- accommodation for travelers. The thing to accomplish was, under the guise of giving equal accommodation for whites and blacks, to compel the latter to keep themselves to keep themselves while traveling in railroad passenger co- coaches. No one would be so wanting in candor as to assert the contrary. Now, what's interesting about this, of course, is the issue of segregated rail cars goes all the way back before the war, and uh, where you had segregated rail cars in Connecticut. Now, in fact, the term Jim Crow comes out of there. Now, you could say the 14th Amendment wasn't there before the war, and so the 14th Amendment's at play here. But, of course, the 14th Amendment was not designed to legislate on this issue. If it was, then Washington, D.C. would have abolished segregated schools at that point, you see. So Harlan is actually playing fast and loose with what the 14th Amendment actually intended. It did not prohibit segregation. While his decisions upholding racial discrimination are the most obvious examples, politics has influenced numerous other Supreme Court decisions as well. While the Republicans and Democratic parties have in many respects traded places as liberal or conservative formations since the 19th century, both have largely supported a social consensus favoring the interests of business over those of workers. It appears clear that when judges are appointed by politicians, in this case nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate, their philosophies are likely to be shaped by politics. The Supreme Court has a long history of handing out decisions unfavorable to labor or organized or working people, even if they are presented in neutral-sounding legal language. For instance, in the 1899 decision, Lochner v. New York uh, overturned a law setting maximum working hours for bankers on the grounds that it violated the right to freedom of contract. That supposed right came up again in 1923 when the court overturned a minimum wage for women in Adkins v. Children's Hospital. That ruling, by the way, came under Chief Justice William Howard Taft, a former president. That's the only time a former president has been on the Supreme Court, though Taft's successor as Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes was a former Republican presidential nominee. Now, what's interesting about this, of course, is you're looking at... um, I get into Lochner v. New York in my American Constitutions class, so I'm not going to... Take that class, right? It's a really good class. I talk about these things. But um, the court... Uh, has, I mean, he's being accurate here. The court is involved in political decisions. I think that's the takeaway from this piece. He's actually going through some things that show the court has been political. After Franklin Roosevelt was elected in 1932, the politically motivated tendency to find reasons why laws regulating business operations were unconstitutional went into overdrive. There were four justices on the Supreme Court who clearly loathed FDR's policies and were determined to short-circuit his agenda however they could. Nicknamed the Four Horsemen, Justices Pierce Butler, James Clark McReynolds, George Sutherland, and Willis Van uh, Deventer, viewed themselves as ideological crusaders on a mission to take down a president they perceived as a dangerous socialist. Now, what's funny about this is how uh, Rosa is distorting what's happening here. Roosevelt's agenda was unconstitutional. These justices were simply saying this stuff is unconstitutional. But what he did, when he tries to court pack, he doesn't... That's not viewed as politically motivated. Uh, Roosevelt tried to solve the problem in 1937, though it was what is now called court packing, through what is now called court packing, specifically by adding a new justice each time a current one passed the age of 70 but refused to retire. We'll never know whether that might actually have made the Supreme Court less political, but in the event the plan blew up, but in the event 
the plan blew up in Roosevelt's face. So he's thinking that this would have made the court less political, but actually it would have made it more political. Because what you're doing is adding politically motivated justices to counteract another politically motivated justice. This is where these leftists, I mean, they don't realize, I, I don't think he gets that the court has long been an arm of the left. And the only time they don't like it is when they don't control it. And then they start whining about it. But generally, it's been an arm of the left. Throughout most of American history, his only consolation came in the forms of an unexplained change of heart by Justice Owen Roberts, who had previously opposed the New Deal but voted to uphold Washington State's minimum wage in the case of West Coast Hotel County v. Parrish. That deflated Roosevelt's court-packing plan and solidified the entirely fictional notion that the high court was above politics, or at least was supposed to be. What happened there is that Roosevelt politicized the court. Owen Roberts decided to change his vote so that they would not be packed, right? That's it. He's, he's capitulating to the president. So you've actually politicized the court. Yet not much the court has done since Roosevelt era has made that notion more plausible than it was before 1937. In 2000, it installed George W. Bush as president in a 5-4 ruling that could not possibly have been more nakedly partisan. A decade later, in Citizens United v. FEC, the high court's conservative justices managed both to side against Hillary Clinton and assert that corporate campaign expenditures were effectively political speech. It could not be regulated on the First Amendment. Notice here that this lefty is pointing out things that don't work for him, but I mean, can you not point out other things where the court is operating from the left? Roe v. Wade, Brown v. Board of Education. I mean, these are decisions that weren't really based on the Constitution itself, but on political motivation. Both of them. So, the left has been doing this. And you could, I mean, I could go down a litany of cases that were like this. More recently, of course, the Supreme Court confirmation process has become a focus, the focus of Machiavellian politics, largely because of Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. Yeah, that's it. That's why it is. I mean, it had nothing to do with Clarence Thomas or anything else. See, this is, this is the funny thing about Salon or any of these lefties. They think that somehow it's only conservatives who have made the court into a political sideshow. It's always been the left that's done this. And the right has simply just, or conserv Republicans, I should say, have simply taken up the mantle and just said, we're going to play by your rules. We're going to play your game. And we're going to use the court. That's what they've done. And the left doesn't like it. They want to make it more political for their side. You see. He refused to consider Barack Obama's nominee in 2016, arguing that it was an election year, but he pushed through Amy Coney Barrett's 2020 nomination just days before Joe Biden was elected. Add to that the firestorm that surrounded Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation in 2018, and it's almost bizarre that anyone can pretend the court is not infused with politics. I mean, it is bizarre. I mean, uh, Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, what just happened in 2022 with uh, Jackson, Justice Jackson, which was nakedly partisan. I mean, come on. What about Joe Biden? What about uh, blocking Robert Bork? He doesn't bring that up. That was nakedly partisan. Nakedly partisan for the Democrats. Those three justices nominated by Donald Trump, of course, have created the conservative supermajority that has led to the near certain downfall of Roe. That makes the court appear more political than ever before, perhaps, but appearance is not the same thing as historical reality. Now, um, again... If they're overturning a bad decision, that would not be partisan. But you can't really make a legal case for Roe v. Wade. This is impossible. So this is what they're doing. And it just goes back to the states where it belonged. All right. So I thought this article was interesting because the lefties are now going berserk over the political nature of the court. 
when it's been their legislative arm for decades. And they're just upset now that they don't control it anymore. Uh, I think this piece is a nice example of that. All right. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.